Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Recorded live. Good. Good morning, Northern Maine. Welcome to the Northern Maine Landman Show on the Constitutional Radio Network, Conscience of Maine. Brought to you today on TalkShoe Radio worldwide. Just Google Northern Maine Landman and you'll find it. Well, there is an awful lot going on. We've got a primary coming up Tuesday in the state of Maine. And they're going to try an experiment, well-funded experiment, lots of money from out of state, and we're going to have a a ranked choice voting event. You walk into the bowls, and you're going to have a piece of paper with, if you're a Democrat, you're going to get seven candidates to vote for. And they want you to rank these in order from your best one, favorite candidate, right up and down to the person you never heard of before, and you probably wouldn't want that person to be represent you as governor. So, and in between, the five other candidates. And they want you to rank them in order of how you'd like them to be uh, placed in this. It's like a raffle, you know. They're going to draw numbers. So, they're going to take your ballot, well, all the other ballots for governor, the Democrats have seven. And they're going to throw out the person that comes in last and recount them 
until they finally get to somebody that's got more than 50% plus one of the remaining balance, not of the total balance. So when Governor LePage was reelected last time, he got more votes for governor than any other governor in the history of the state of Maine. And he got 38.5% of the total votes because there were three candidates. Well, under the ranked choice system, a governor could be elected with less than 38.5% of the total votes. He could not be elected with 34% of the total votes. Because when you start throwing people's ballots out, set them aside and don't forget about those people. Their vote's not going to count. Then they'll finally arrive at somebody that the ranked choice voting system approves of. And it's, ah, there it is. That person is going to be our governor. It's a terrible system. I'm avoiding using profanity here. (laughs) It's a terrible system. No other state has ever done this. None. But they picked Maine because we're a low-population state, and we don't get too upset about things. We just kind of hunker down and press on regardless. But it's a dumb thing to do. Just plain old dumb. The Republicans have only four candidates. So if nobody gets more than 50%, you're going to throw out even more votes than the Democrats threw up. Because the bottom candidate, whoever that is, I figure the bottom candidate is going to be Perdette. He's a lawyer out of out of uh, Newport. And you can drive all over the state and not see a Perdette sign. I'm not sure how he's campaigning, but he's not very visible. So you got this situation. Then uh, they'll throw out the candidate gets the most, the fewest votes. Maybe let's say he gets 10% of the total. They throw out 10% of the people's votes. Then they do it again. And maybe it's close to a three-way tie. But they throw out the bottom one. So you've got each one of those people has near 30%. So you throw out the bottom one. And now you've got a situation where one of the remaining people has got 42% of the original votes and the other person has 38% of the remaining votes, I should say. But that 42% is not 42% of the total votes. It's complicated. And the main Supreme Court has ruled that this procedure is unconstitutional. Can you imagine the field day that the lawyers are going to have next Wednesday? I don't think we're going to know who the people, the winners are, until October. Because this thing is going to get dragged on the courts. It's unconstitutional to start with. So if they rule the entire election of those items on the ballot that are ranked choice, What are they going to do? Now, we've got a couple of things on the ballot. Like in our district, we've got whether or not to put a $2.5 million addition onto a school that costs $2.5 million in the first place. Roughly, round numbers. And the citizens are either going to pony up and say, yep, we really ought to do that. Or they're going to say, are you flipping nuts? Why would you do this? We've got three schools. We're closing down one school. We're going to add on to another school. Close down another school. It's like it's like finding the pea at the at the carnival. Which which half of the walnut shell is the pea under? Well, we've got some notable people in our community that have said, "No, we should not do this at this time. We need to think this out a little more thoroughly." And I recommend, and they recommend, you got the two, you got the two very liberal people here in town, or in the, in the area. It's it's a regional thing. 
you've got two prominent liberals that say no. And you've got several prominent conservatives that say no. And I think this thing is going to go down in flames. Then we'll go back to the drawing board and face reality. The whole state is, is, is in chaos in many different categories. So I am running for the legislature, in case anybody didn't know. District 141, the main, main House of Representatives. We've got, uh, and I have an opponent. I decided to run this. Oh, gee. He's too radical. We, 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 we don't want to get him down there in Augusta. He knows too much. I've been advocating for rural Maine for, for three decades, more than three decades. Down to the legislature, and I advocate for rural Maine. And we wanted to do away with work. Back when Governor LePage ran the first time. They had a forum down there before the convention in Portland. And they had each one of the candidates got to speak and answer questions. There were seven candidates for governor that year. They went down through, and all the page, Mayor Waterville was the, the fifth or the sixth person. I, I forget exactly, but he was near the end of this question. And they got down there and they said, Mr. LePage, if you were elected governor, what one state agency would you abolish or cut back substantially? And each of the each of the previous candidates that answered the questions, well, you know, we have to consider the, the employees and we have to consider their families, we have to consider, you know, how this would affect people, you know, if we if we cut back on state government. They're, these Republicans were wishy-washy about it. Governor LePage, if you were elected governor, what one state agency would you eliminate or cut back substantially? He said, work. This is dead air. Okay. It was one word answer. And after a pause of about five or six or eight seconds, whatever it was, they were cheering and shouting all over the hotel. People in the lobbies were watching, people in the bar, people in the restaurant watching the TV. Just erupted in cheers. And the people from down there around the Portland area looked around and said, what just happened? Because those people didn't even know what work was. The Land Use Regulation Commission is a bunch of bureaucrats that rule the unorganized territories and the unorganized townships and the plantations and the various other categories. Some towns are organized towns, but they didn't want to bother managing their own land use, so they asked the state to come in and manage it for them. <laughs> yeah. And once they were trapped, they couldn't get out. They put out monkey traps in Asia, and they'll put a a piece of fruit, and the monkey has to reach through a hole, and he grabs the fruit, and with the fruit inside his hand, it's like a man holding a baseball in his hand. He can't pull his hand back out, but he won't let go of the fruit. He's trapped. He could let go of the fruit and pull his hand out, but he won't do it. And they grab the monkey and put him in a net and haul him off, and, and uh, the monkey eventually reaches his final destination, whatever that may be. No point in getting into it any further than that on this show. But that's a monkey trap. The state government land use regulations are a monkey trap. Because once you reach in there, you can't get your hand back out. They got you. It's a scary thing that 52% of our state is governed by people where the residents don't have any right to vote for those who govern them. And that's a fact. That's a fact. Land Use Regulation Commission, they thought that sounded kind of kind of threatening. So they changed the name to the Land Use Planning Commission. And for the average person, you know, planning doesn't sound like a bad thing. You plan your vacation, you plan your when you're going to 
buy your next vehicle, want to buy a camp someday, and you make plans for that, you plan a family reunion. These are all happy things, you know. But the Land Use Planning Commission is simply a word change from the Land Use Regulation Commission. And they voted to make it bigger, stronger, and meaner than it used to be. Now, under the LePage administration, they have not been too hostile. They've approved a bunch of building permits, and they haven't really harassed the landowners that much. You wait, because come January of next year, we're going to have a different governor. One of the parties is going to come out, and they're going to declare that this is a wonderful thing because this person has been elected governor. Choose wisely. Choose carefully. Because what happens, this is going to determine the whole future of the state of Maine. We, our unemployment rate is 3.8% last, last I saw. It's the lowest it's been since World War II. It's, Maine is, has great job opportunities. There are jobs going unfilled. And one of the reasons they're unfilled is, is uh, you know, we, we have a big shortage of truckers. And we have, we're beginning to have a shortage of teachers. And to become a teacher, you know, one of the things you have to do is take a physical and you take a drug test. And if you don't pass the drug test, you don't get the job in a number of different occupations. They don't want people in some occupations, like pilots, law enforcement officers, truckers, teachers, doctors and nurses. They, they, want, they don't want these people to be druggies. And that's with good reason. You know, you, you shouldn't have these people. Druggies shouldn't be, shouldn't be in these occupations. So we've got a whole bunch of people in Maine that can't get into these occupations. They have to do something else, like sleep the floor at Walmart or something, you know, sleep the parking lot or bring in the bring in the the, the carts, you know, into the store. After the people abandon the cart out in the parking lot, somebody has to go get the cart. So there there are places that needs to be done. Somebody has to do that. Well, that's, uh, there are jobs out there. A lot of jobs that are hard to fill. A lot of hotels and restaurants need to hire foreign workers for, for the summertime because these there aren't enough Maine kids that want to work. They've got second and third generation folks that have chosen not to work. They're being reimbursed for that decision. You need to need to cut back on that. You know, if you want to get get welfare, you're going to have to you're going to have to do something. Over in New Hampshire, you know, a guy goes in the town office and says, you know, he says, it's getting on, getting near fall. Kids need new jackets. They're all growing. Need new jackets. They need new boots. Uh, by the way, there's no oil in my tank. I need oil so I can keep the house warm. And the town says, you came to the right place. You come down here Monday morning. We'll put you to work hoeing out the culverts. Dig all the sand out of the culverts so the culverts won't freeze up in the wintertime and flood ice across the road. Well, I don't want to do that. Well, then you need to go over to Maine. They've got a program for you over in Maine where you get this aid and you don't have to work. And people come to Maine. People come to the town of Portland, the city of Portland. A young couple comes to Portland. And she's a nurse and he's an accountant. But young professionals. And they're married. They, they buy a house in Portland. Well, they rent a condo, but a lot of people buy houses in Portland. And they they work. And they have a child, maybe a second child. When the first child gets up to be four or five years old, it's time to go off to kindergarten. This couple moves out of Portland to a different town. 
because they don't want to send their child to a school system where they have 68 different first languages. Because a teacher in a classroom who's got a dozen or 15 different first languages and a couple of local kids whose first language is English, uh, you know, it's difficult for the average average five-year-old in kindergarten to to learn what they should learn in that environment. So the parents simply move. It happens. So that's a it's it's interesting because you've got this this cycle that goes. You got young professionals move in. If they have children, they move out. If they don't have children, it doesn't make any difference except for the fact that it's very expensive to hire all these foreign born translators in the school system. It adds to the cost. It's expensive. Expensive education is expensive everywhere in Maine, but particularly down there in Portland area. Lewiston, Auburn, same thing. Got a whole lot of Somali translators. Talked to I watched Mary Mayhew last night and previously also. She said that if ICE does conducts a raid in Maine then it's some employer that's hiring alien criminals, Maine State Police be right there with them, backing them up. We are not gonna be a sanctuary state. Now we've got a sanctuary city in Portland. And I don't know the, the situation in Auburn, Lewiston. I don't know if, if they're declared sanctuary cities or they've just got, they're just coping with the situation as it exists. Don't know much about that. So I won't comment on that. But uh, up here in the North Country, up here in District 141 where I live, it is 113 miles from Attawankeg to Edmonds. Edmonds has a 26-foot tide when there's a new moon or a full moon. That's a big tide. Water all comes rushing in there. And six hours later, it's down 26 feet. Six hours later, it's back up 26 feet. If you've never watched it, it's kind of fun to watch. If you live there, it's you know it's something that happens all the time, and it's not not an interesting thing to you. It's just part of the environment. But if you don't live there, they've got a place called Copscook Bay State Park. And it's got, uh, it's a beautiful facility. And there's no, not many black flies around salt water. So black flies aren't too bad. Mosquitoes aren't too bad right by the ocean either. You can't see right the broad expanse of the ocean like you can from Cadillac Mountain, for example. What you see is, is a bay with trees all the way around it. So when you're standing there at the park, you got this great big mud flat out front with a brook running down through it. And then the tide starts coming. And there's a beach there. You can go swimming. But you want to be careful if you do. You want to have flotation gear because you can't swim as fast as that tide goes. That tide's going to go out into the Atlantic Ocean. You can't grab a rock or something and climb back up out of there. You're going for a ride, and the water's cold. It's real cold. But come the end of August, it won't be quite as quite as cold. So it goes from Mattawankeg, Kingman, Webster, Wynn, Lee, Springfield, Carroll, Casus, Talmadge, Codyville, Lambert Lake, and Vanceboro, right across. And it goes from Danforth, Brookton, Topsfield, Wake, Grand Lake Stream, Princeton, Alexander, Cooper, Denny'sville, Edmonds. Edmonds is the southernmost town in this district, 113 miles below the northernmost town by road, not on a straight line. But you don't have to zigzag around and get there. You could, it's 113 miles. And there are places that a lot of people don't know where they are, like Dyer and Fowler and 
Crawford and Cooper. Where in the world is? Where's Dyer? Where's Fowler? Where's Lambert Lake? Where's Twombly? These these places do exist. People live there. They don't require a lot from the state, but they pay taxes. They're not allowed to vote for the people that govern them, which is the Land Use Planning Commission. You have to go to those people and say, I want to build a woodshed because it's getting colder and I'm a little older and I'm going to burn more wood next winter and I I want to keep the wood covered so I don't have to break it loose from the pile that's full of ice and frozen and try to burn the wood stove. I want to keep my wood dry and stacked. I want to build a bigger woodshed. You have to go to the state land use planning commission to get permission to build that woodshed. The rule, permanent structure. The the town next door to you, Topsfield, they don't care if you build a woodshed or not. Go for it. The Land Use Planning Commission does not have a building code for straw bale houses. We had a lady come to our town. She wanted to build a straw bale house. Yep, $5 for a building permit, go for it. He built the straw bale house. There is no building code for a straw bale house. But it was her dream, and some places in Maine, you're allowed to live your dream. You will probably not be in that straw bale house for the rest of her life, but it's an experience that she wanted to wanted to have, and she got it. All human rights. You want to protect the people. Let them pursue their dreams. Even if you think their dream is a little peculiar, they've got a right to be a little peculiar, as long as they're not a threat to somebody else. I'm looking at a document that I found recently, and I hadn't seen it for quite a while. It's the Northern Forest Headquarters National Wilderness Reserve System. Okay? You may not have heard of this before. But this map was drawn and produced under contract, federal government, by Cartographic Associates Incorporated in Littleton, New Hampshire. They're a large surveying and land use planning consulting firm. Surveyors. It's uh, Cartographic Associates Incorporated. They they make maps for towns. They do zoning maps and uh, district maps for political entities and whatnot. And this is the vision that the federal government had for Northern Maine in 19, excuse me, date again, 1995, okay? It's not dated as to the day in the week, but it was 1995 that this map was created. And it lists all of the federal lands in the state of Maine. And this spills over into New Hampshire also and Northern Vermont, the Northern Forest. And this was what led to the Northern Forest Alliance, which is for Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, and into the Adirondacks. But in Maine, they have a list of the communities slated for 20 to 60% depopulation. In other words, if you have a town with 1,000 people, okay, they want to cut out six from, uh, let's see, from 600 to 800 people out of your town. They want them gone. Force them out. And we, unorganized territories, came up with a name for this process. It's called rural cleansing. Now back in, in, the, in the early 2000s, 2005, 19, no, excuse me, 1995, yeah, 1995, thereabouts, uh, Bill Clinton invaded Serbia. 
Most Americans didn't even know where Serbia was. The Serbian Orthodox Church is an old, old Christian church. They they had a bunch of, of illegal aliens from Albania that came into Serbia. And the southernmost province of Serbia is Kosovo, Kosovo province. Well, the Muslim hordes have invaded Kosovo province in Serbia several times. And they were defeated each and every time. Serbia was Christian. And the Serbs were Christian. They had the Serbian Orthodox Church. And they were chasing the Muslims back across the border from Kosovo into Albania, where they came from. These people are Albanian. They speak a different language. And they had invaded, invaded Serbia because Albania is where the heroin from Afghanistan gets, gets processed, excuse me, where the opium from Afghanistan gets processed into heroin. Huge heroin operation. And from there, it goes to Central America, and the, the coyotes and the mules carry it up into the United States. Hugely profitable operation. Helps to fund ISIS and the various other Muslim terrorist groups. American dollars buying heroin, and ultimately it goes, it find, the money finds its way back to the processors in Albania and Afghanistan where they grow the opium poppies. We always seem to wind up in places that grow opium poppies. We have American troops guarding those areas, like Thailand and Cambodia and Burma back almost 50 years ago now. It's important to have adults who understand these things and know these things in the legislature. Experience counts. I'm running for the legislature because I was asked to run. It's not some novelty that Gee, that would be fun to do. My opponent went down to the Washington County Republican Committee meeting. And the president of Washington County, Republicans, said, well, we have two candidates here tonight from District 141. Would they like to say something? I looked over at my opponent. I said, ladies before gentlemen, she stood up, and she skipped down the aisle. I've never seen an adult skip, ever. (laughs) I see children skip when they're playing hopscotch and stuff, but she skipped down the aisle and said, oh, I am so excited to be running for the main house. This is going to be so much fun. I looked around, and the other people, there was nobody in that room under the age of 50, except for her. And they all looked around, and I kind of raised my eyebrows and thought, oh, good. (laughs) She has a a handbill out, a palm card, with pictures of her family standing on top of Mount Katahdin. That's a good thing. I've been on top of Mount Katahdin. And we, uh, my son's been on top of Mount Katahdin. We outdoor people have been all our lives. I was the first registered Maine guide in the state of Maine to guide to the sled dog team. So she told her story, and some of it was astonishing, some of her life experiences. And I would not repeat them because it would be a disservice to do so. She was just so excited. This was going to be so much fun. But I have three decades, more than three decades, of experience advocating for Northern Maine. I was president of the Rotary Club in Lincoln when we bought the two first cardiac monitor defibrillators for the ambulance. The new thing for this part of the state. I said, if we do this, we will have a save this year. 
in all the various organizations from Lincoln area. This is just for Lincoln and the surrounding area. So they, uh, the ambulance service covers you know, a large area. And they, uh, they, uh, they voted it in. They raised the money. We raised $19,000 in six weeks. Bought the cardiac bronchial defibrillators. Trained the EMTs to use them. And that just within a month, from the time they were placed in service, we had a save, middle-aged lady, and she had a heart attack, and they defibrillated her. I, I was not on that run. I didn't see it happen, but it happened. And they brought her back to life, and she was in the hospital for a while, and she, ended, she had some treatments. I probably got a bypass or something. But she recovered fully, and she is alive and well today because of this. And I've been involved in a number of Jaws of Life. Uh, I knew how to use the Jaws of Life from uh, a previous area where I lived. And they didn't have any in this area. So uh, one of the firemen in Lincoln and I because I had experience with them, campaigned to raise the money, because the town wasn't going to do it, campaigned to raise money for the Jaws of Life. And I showed them something that was surprising to the the people that were there. I can pick up an egg with a Jaws of Life, walk around with it, set it back down without cracking the shell. Jaws of Life is a powerful tool. It can rip stuff apart. You have a head-on collision, and the engine from your front-wheel drive vehicle is folded right back into the passenger compartment, and your legs are pinned under that to the floor of the vehicle. You can't take somebody out of there. You've got to pull that engine away from the person's feet, or both person's feet if there's two people in the front seat. You've got to unfold the vehicle, to take the patient out. It's true. And that's there's, there's a way to do that. But you have to be precise. You have to be careful. And the chief, the chief task of the EMT present is to keep that patient alive and defend the patient <laughs> from people that want to help. Because before we had the jaws of life, we had backhoes. Somebody would go off the road, roll the vehicle over, or hit a pole or a big tree, great big old maple tree, about three feet in diameter, you stop quick. It doesn't move. And there's the vehicle all crushed up. And the farmer comes by with his backhoe on his tractors. Can I help? You sure can. He's stuck that in the driver's wall a little bit and lift that up. They can pop that door open. And... uh, Another time a farmer came by and says, what do you need? I said, we need light. Says, I've got light. And he came out with this great big spotlight to illuminate the whole area because, you know, we couldn't. It was so dark. We used to have these little pen lights, like you stick in your shirt pocket. We've come a long way with lighting from what it used to be. We had these little disposable pen lights, and they were bright for about five or ten minutes, and then they kind of faded. Being an EMT is it requires a lot of compassion, a lot of resourcefulness, because you don't have the tools, the ideal tools that you need at the scene of some crashes. And you've got a, a limited amount of time. They have what they call a golden hour. And an EMT needs to get the, the patient to the hospital in less than an hour to have an optimum result. In other words, the patient patient that gets there in less than an hour, and you got a team, a trauma team, to work with that patient has a far better chance of recovering fully. When you've got a person with broken bones and no anesthetic, you've got to move that person. You know, you've got somebody that's real unhappy to start with. And now you're going to move the person. Well, there are ways to do that without making matters worse. 
patient handling and understanding how to handle that patient without broken bones dragging around inside that leg and severing arteries and nerves. You know, we taught to do that. I was an EMT instructor. And it takes it takes a special kind of person to do it. So and out in rural rural America, northern Maine, and lots of other rural areas. You really, you really rely on your on your neighbors and your fellow townspeople. And Maine people are just great. They're resourceful. They don't interfere too much unless they see you're really going to hurt yourself. Like, you know, you don't want to cut that tree without putting a cable on it because it's going to squash your garage or it's going to land right on your pickup, you know. You get somebody that knows how to take trees down. You ought to find out who they are in your neighborhood, make contact with them and say, look, this dead tree is going to come down in one of these windstorms. Can you give me a hand? And he'll come and advise you. Or he'll take it down for you. And maybe you're happy to get rid of it and let him have the firewood. You know, it works both ways. We have great resources. I was in in a restaurant one morning, having breakfast with a customer. We were going to go out and look at land. He wanted to buy some land. He wanted to buy 100 acres. And he wanted to be able to hunt bear on his own land. I said, well, I've got a few of those. We'll go look at them. I gave him some maps and stuff. And uh, we're sitting there having breakfast. And we're listening to the conversation at the counter. These people are up a little higher, sitting on stools at the counter. It's a U-shaped counter, talking back and forth. All of these people have been involved in occupations that are harmful to your hearing. Paper mills, the armed forces, just chainsaws, you know, loggers, and and uh, he's listening to all this, this conversation. These people are just chatting back and forth as they do every morning, pretty much the same bunch every day. It varies. But, you know, people are in there three or four days a week. It's, it's, it's a good, good way to socialize and find out what's going on. And he said, boy, these are interesting people. There they are. And I recited the occupations of each of the people around that counter. I knew them all. But, you know, they have a variety of occupations, or they're retirees from occupations. And uh, you've got very prosperous timber barons. You've got very prosperous potato farmers. You've got military retirees, a teacher, a logger, a uh, steel worker a paper maker, all the way around. And the uh, guy retired from the CIA. He was a, he's um, a translator for the CIA. And he knew China, three or four different dialects of Chinese. Really smart guy. He was a neighbor of mine. Passed away now. But uh, I said, said to my customer sitting there, I said, yep. Some days we talk about the Higgs-Hansen model of disaggregated macroeconomic demand, and some days we talk about smelt fishing. <laughs> he cracked up. So I'm looking at this sheet of paper here. I mentioned earlier that there are communities that were slated by the federal government for 60, 20 to 60% depopulation. Okay, There are 64 communities. Okay. Now, let me just name off a few of them. Eagle Lake, St. Francis, Wapan, Masardis, Percy, Island Falls, Sherman Station, Stacyville, Medway, East Millinocket. Okay? A big paper mill in East Millinocket, they wanted to get rid of 20 to 60% of the, of the population. Not a warm cake. Chester, Wynn, Lincoln had a paper mill. 
Okay? It's gone. But they had one. They want 20 to 60% depopulation. Bova Farstroffs, Guilford, Skowhegan, Norridgewalk. No, Skowhegan's a pretty good-sized town. I believe there's a county seat over there. And they want 60% depopulation. Now, you go beyond that, and flip the page here. Hold the phone with one hand and flipping the page here. Okay. Now, now these are communities slated for 100% depopulation. Okay? They want these people gone. Escore Station, the northernmost town in, in Maine, up north of, on the, north of the Little Black River, up on the Canadian border, Escore Station. There's a house up there that's half in Canada and half in the U.S. Kitchen's in Canada, but the bedroom's in the U.S., so since they sleep in the U.S., they're U.S. citizens. But they go to Canada to cook breakfast, right in the same house. You can't make this stuff up. The Suncook Village, the hotel burned a couple of months ago. Burned flat. Rockwood. Rockwood is kind of a prosperous little recreational community at the mouth of the Moose River where it runs into Moosehead Lake. They want it depopulated, 0% year-round residents. They want them gone. Bigelow. Rangeley. Now, Rangeley is quite a ways up there by Rangeley Lake. They don't want any year-round residents in Rangeley. The gold is... 100% depopulation. The Forks, West Forks, Moose River, Dennistown, Jackman. Now, Jackman is a is a busy little town near the Canadian border. The Moose River runs through Jackman. They want it depopulated, 100% depopulation. This is their goal. This is a federal document that was created in 1995 by Cartographic Associates Incorporated in Littleton, New Hampshire. New Hampshire has a lot of towns that were taken over by the federal government, the White Mountain National Forest. The National Forest system was created to provide timber and hydropower. That's why that's why it exists. And there are no private homes in the National Forest. They want the, the northern forest to be depopulated. And that's right from from uh, Fort Kent, for example, all the way across into the Adirondacks. One unbroken boreal forest. That's it. I've got the document in my hand. Unorganized Territories United was organized back around 1992 for the purpose of resisting this effort. And they took the UN Convention on Biodiversity which is a big, fat book, about three, three and a half inches thick, huge, heavy book. It weighs about six or eight pounds. A ream of paper weighs five pounds, okay? A regular ream of 500 sheets of eight and a half by 11 paper weighs five, five pounds. This book is bigger than that and much thicker than that. The book weighs about eight pounds. Dr. Mike Coughlin was talking with Senator George Mitchell, who was the Senate Major, uh, he was president of the Senate, and he said, "This is what they want." He said, "That can't be true." Well, you know, he knew that he knew uh, Mike Kaufman. He said, "It is true." He said, "You show me." So he called Switzerland, and he had one of these books air freighted from Switzerland to Washington D.C. overnight. That's not cheap. 
But you couldn't buy one of these books in the United States at that time. You had to get it out of Switzerland. He had it flown here, met met that package at the airport. There's a place at the airport where you can pick up high-priority air freight. There's a bunch of government employees there waiting for stuff from NATO and whatnot. And Dr. Mike Kaufman got this this package. And it came in, and they were expecting him. And he went in, and he put this thing on Senator George Mitchell's desk. They were getting ready to vote for the for the biodiversity treaty, and he took it off the calendar. He couldn't believe it. He, was, he did, didn't know a thing about it. And the reason that experience counts in the legislature and in in life, experience counts. Back around 1942, Central Bain Power was given the power of eminent domain so that they could seize land, build dams, create, generate electricity and hire people, and we could employ more people in Maine. It was going to be good for jobs. That was the, that was the salesman. Well, there was very, virtually no unemployment during World War II. But after the war, they still said they wanted to build this dam at Long Falls. So they were given the power of eminent domain, and Central Maine Power came in with their agents from Pinkerton, armed guards, and gave people checks for their houses and said, get out of here, we're going to flood it. Well, we don't want to sell. Tough. We have power of eminent domain. Beat feet. Get out of here. Take what you want, and we'll burn the rest. Where have we heard that before? Roxy and Quimby. Anyway. So they seized the villages of Long Falls, Bigelow, Bingham, and oh, name of the lake over there. That's it's the other one, Long Falls, Bingham, Bigelow, and Flagstaff. That's it, Flagstaff. It took me a second. I'm not not working. This is from memory. <laughs> so, but the thing is. You want somebody that knows this stuff in the legislature because Central Maine Power had hydro dams. Central Maine Power built the Long Falls Dam, but guess what? They didn't put a hydro station there, as they promised. They just built the dam. And the water came up, and when it was surrounded the house, they would burn the house. Well, they dug up a bunch of dead people from the cemeteries, from these four villages, and they moved the bodies. Some some of these cemeteries, uh, there weren't any family members in the cemetery. When they got researching their family tree, they went up to look look in uh, in the village of Bigelow, for example, looking for the family cemetery, and it's underwater. They weren't notified because they weren't residents. And they didn't realize that the family plot was now underwater. When the when the lake got up to what they call the pond level, a normal high water mark, it was four feet below the front porch of J.P. Morgan, one of the richest men in the world. And J.P. Morgan now not only had a hunting camp, he had a fishing camp. But that's why the land was built, because J.P. Morgan owned a big piece of Central Maine Power. Central Maine Power was given the right of eminent domain by the Maine State Legislature. That's true. But here's the kicker. Here's why it's important to know this stuff and remember this stuff. Central Maine Power was forced to, to sell all of its hydro-generating capacity which made the company much less profitable. Bangor Hydro was forced to sell all of their hydro-generating power. 
this was not a good idea, but the legislature forced them to do that. They said, look, you can't make electricity and sell it. Good grief, Ford Motor Company makes cars and sells them. You know, you, you ought to be able to sell the product that you produce. But they made them get out of the electricity production business and just go into the light, into the light meter business. So when the power gets to your house, you know, somebody comes and reads the meter, and that's it. You know, you should get a light bill. That's what they do now. But then central main power, since they couldn't produce power anymore, became less and less profitable, and they were sold to a foreign company who has eminent domain in the state of Maine because when they sold the company, along with it went the power of eminent domain as granted by the Maine state legislature. Can you hear a whistle blowing anywhere? I got a whistle. <laughs> yep. Running for the Maine Legislature, District 141. Please come out and vote. I don't know how many people are going to listen to this between now and Tuesday, but I got a whole bunch of people helping me, and I'm hoping that this lady who... Uh, the ladies running against me says that she is happily married and she likes to read. That's it. She has no agenda. She's never served the people of rural Maine in any way, shape, or form. She is. She taught. She home homeschooled her kids. She has three children. That she is homeschooled, and that you know, that's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with homeschooling. Some of them get a better education and a safer place. But she, uh, she just doesn't have any background in public service or advocating for rural Maine. And you have to drive to Augusta, sit there in line, wait, and you better be prepared because you're going to get three minutes to stand up and tell your tale on this particular issue, such as abolishing work. Give us your best shot. A few years prior to that, they wanted to update the Maine Forest Practices Act. And there were a whole bunch of bells and whistles attached to that and disagreeable things. It was really part of the grand, grand scheme of things to make it unprofitable to own large tracts of timberland in the state of Maine. Today, there is not one single acre of Maine Paper Company land in the state of Maine. None. It's all been sold. People call me all the time. I want to buy a piece of land that abuts or is near Paper Company land. Because the, the, the tradition was that you would go hunt on Paper Company land and nobody mind it. You know? Just be careful. Don't harm anything. Don't cut any live trees. Don't burn the place down. And you could go hunt on paper company land. And there's it, there's so much of it that there, it wasn't crowded. And you could get back a mile in the woods, and of course you have to think about how far can you drag a moose? <laughs> well, how far can you drag a deer by yourself? Most paper companies don't allow ATVs on their land. You can ride the roads. You know, if you if you've got an established logging road and it's designated as an ATV trail, you can cover a lot of ground. You can go from Mattawamkeag, Maine, to the ocean on an ATV legally. There is no other state, none, where you can do that legally. And I've been advocating for rural Maine in many ways, whether it's as an EMT instructor, as a volunteer fireman, member of the school board, member of the town planning board, Remember the Rotary Club years ago? Deacon in the church. The deacon in the church is a is kind of an expediter. You know, you make sure things get done. You know, the sidewalk is shoveled before, Sunday morning before the parishioners get there to go to church. That has to happen. And 
you have to plow the parking lot if there is a parking lot. And it, that has to happen. All these things have to happen. And the deacon, when some, something needs doing, they call the deacon. lady called me up and said, can you go get Fred? Where is he? He's in the hospital. Okay. Which hospital? Well, he's in Togus. Togus is 134 miles down the road. But he didn't drive there. He was taken there by ambulance. And he was ready to go home. His, his, uh, they treated his condition and everything was okay. And Okay, Fred, you can go home now. Fred says, well, just one problem. What's that? He says, my clothes and my jacket and my hat and my shoes are in Lee, Maine. <laughs> oh, well, they call up. Who do they call? They call the deacon. So I said, yep, I will go to Togus and I'll pick up Fred. Get all of his stuff into a big plastic bag. Shoes, socks, underwear, pants and shirt, hat. U.S. Marine Corps hat, U.S. Marine Corps jacket, and I'll go get Fred. I really like to take a ride with Fred because both military veterans of a similar age, and I, uh, being a Marine Corps, you know, they're associated with the Navy in sort of a, a different role. So I like riding with Fred. And, uh, On the way home, we stopped to get a sandwich in a local sandwich shop. And police had stopped a vehicle and because somebody, a non-custodial parent, had taken a child. And somebody called the cops, and the cops stopped them, and there were people standing there, and some of the relatives were there, and a couple of police officers. And there was a lot of screaming and yelling going on. So I'm just standing there off to the side by myself. And this this officer that was by himself to start with, all of a sudden he's in the middle of a bunch of irate people, and he never even looked over his shoulder, didn't know what was behind him. He's a new cop, young guy. So I just stayed there outside my vehicle watching this whole thing. And uh, Fred was in the vehicle watching this whole thing. And uh, another police officer showed up, and uh, things calmed down a little bit. And uh, and I as and then they all left. The the relatives departed. The kid got in the in the police car. They're going to take the kid to where the kid belonged. And the supervisor left. But before the supervisor left, I walked over. And I said, his backup is departing the scene. I said, he never did a sweep of the perimeter. Never ever looked over his shoulder. I said, you need to kind of bring him up to speed. And the cop says, oh, thank you. <laughs> Who are you? I said, I'm, a, I'm just an EMT informer. I was in the military. I says, and you, when you get into a situation, you want to do a sweep of the perimeter and find out where you are. He says, that's exactly right. He says, thank you very much. <laughs> It is 10 o'clock straight up. This has been the Northern Mainland Man Show on the Constitutional Radio Network. All kinds of good stuff today. More stuff next week. I'll know whether I'm still in the race or whether this lady that likes to, is happily married and, and likes to read, and maybe they'll choose her to represent them. This has been the Northern Mainland Man Show on the Constitutional Radio Network. Conscious of Maine, broadcast today in Maine and worldwide on Talk Show Radio. This is Friday, June 8, 2018, the day before our primary. No, it isn't. Tuesday's the primary. Tuesday, the 12th is the primary. And by Wednesday of next week, well, next week, the show will know. So be safe. That water is still cold. It is really cold. The soil temperature is cold. The potatoes aren't even sticking their head up above ground. It's, they planted potatoes two weeks ago, and the ground is so cold, there's not even a green leaf sticking up out of there. And we're hoping for some warmer weather. 
Be safe around that cold weather. God bless. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.